0: Well good morning Grace, it's good to be with you again even in this way. Uh, You can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 as we continue on in our Odyssey through 1 Corinthians uh, now approaching uh, the end of the book. Just two more chapters to go. And while you're turning there, I, I just wanna say that lest you think there's nothing happening here at Grace during these days, there is. Because if you were here in this room and you were able to look to my right you would see um, uh, bundles of food ready to be distributed, uh, stacks of all sorts of essentials ready to be given out, which they are uh, every Friday uh, by way of appointment here at Food Bank. And then uh, even throughout the past few weeks, I've noticed how the women's Bible studies for this summer have begun to stack up and they'll be presented to you, I believe, later this week Uh, On Thursday, every Thursday, uh, the LaGracia team comes in here and along with our tech team that's bringing you this broadcast today, they uh, record and get ready to present a Spanish language uh, version of the the LaGracia service. And and then tonight we'll be gathering in this way for family time beginning at six o'clock. And gratefully, if I understand this correctly, uh, we now have a Zoom account that doesn't uh, tap out at 100 so we can have as many as 500 people gathering tonight uh, on your screen though if we had that many I think we'd probably look the size of microchips so um, anyway uh, we're busy uh, in the Lord and for the Lord together as a church that's a good thing uh, during these trying days well 1 Corinthians 15 is where we find ourselves this morning Uh, Sometimes what is last is really first. It's the thing of greatest importance. It's it's the thing to be remembered. It's It's the culmination and the resolution of all that's come before it. Like the final movement of a symphony or the closing scene of a movie or the last chapter of a book. Now there are cases when that is true in Scripture and especially in the letters of the Apostle Paul. So for example, the way to do his letter to the Ephesians is by way of putting on the armor of God. The way to do do Galatians is as a new creation in Christ. The way to do Philippians is by way of Paul's example, which of course is hammered out on the anvil of Scripture. All of these things are found uh, near or at the end of each one of these letters. And so it is as we come here to 1 Corinthians 15. uh, The entire book we have been looking at since last September 1st. I was thinking about that the other day. That was a lifetime ago in some ways. But before we look at this last thing of first importance, I... I want to throw in a good word for the church at corinth especially look especially since we've been looking at areas that require growth uh, even great growth there in that first century fellowship because for all of its problems if you had lived in first century corinth you would have been a member of this church and if you'd been a member of this church then you would have been grateful for it since it was a congregation in which the testimony of Christ had been confirmed, among which no spiritual gift was lacking, for which Paul gave thanks, on which Paul relied for the furtherance of his ministry, to which he looked forward to returning, even spending an entire winter. Uh, We know all these things from chapters one and 16. Paul's final words to this church, the members of which he referred to as my beloved children, were my love be with you all. So there was no shortage of a sincere and deep seated affection, a rich and spiritual gifting among the church at Corinth. So what was the problem? What what is it at which we've been looking over all of these weeks? Well, the problem was one of divisions. We saw that all the way at the very beginning, back in chapter 1, verse 10, and we've seen it all the way through the letter. Divisions within the church, as well as the households out of which it was made. Divisions that were the result of me-centeredness. A me-centeredness that regularly asks, what's best for me? And not an other-centeredness, which... Uh, regularly asked, according to the scripture, what's best for you or for us or for Christ and his kingdom. That first century me-centered lifestyle is one with which we can easily identify in the 21st century, isn't it? It's a lifestyle that's leaving our society morally threadbare and is testing the church at its seams. In chapters 1 through 12, Paul thoughtfully articulated the origins and the aspects of this me-centered lifestyle, and then in chapter 13, as as he begins to move into the final phase of the book, Paul clearly identified the antidote for the me-centered lifestyle, which is love. But the question for us this morning is, what kind of love did Paul advocate? Because we've all seen, we've all even been party to love, uh, tried, and failed. For some, uh, in a marriage covenant. For others, in some kind of a business partnership. For yet others, in some sort of a social movement. What was this still more excellent way, chapter 12, verse 31, that kept one's actions from being received as a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, chapter 13, verse 1. on On what is that sort of love founded? What is the stuff out of which it is made? And the answer to that question is the main point to this morning's sermon. And it's simply this. The gospel the good news as we see there in verse 3 it is the matter of first importance in this letter so the answer to division is love and that by way of the gospel as explained here and now the second to last chapter of this book where we will consider the gospel in this way. Uh, The delivery of the gospel in verses 1 through 3a. The content of the gospel in verses 3b through 5a. The truth of the gospel in 5b through 7. And then the audience for the gospel in verses 8 through 11. So that's the way forward this morning. But before we get there, let's read our passage and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on it. So uh, read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received And so you believed. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, to begin, let's look at the delivery of the gospel. Notice there right off the bat that the gospel is something that the Corinthians had received. It didn't originate in their midst. It's something that they received from Paul, who had also received it himself. You see that there in verses 1 and 3. In fact, Paul told the Galatians... The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, again, is not something with which the Corinthians came up or Paul came up. It was something that they had received. It was also that in which the Corinthians stood. We see that there in the second half of verse 1. It not only signaled the start of the Corinthian church, but but it it was their present sustenance and and stability and security. Further, notice that the gospel not only marked the past and the present of the Corinthian church, but their future as well. Notice that that the gospel is that by which the Corinthians were being saved. We see that there in verse number 2. It was the message that Paul preached at their beginning, and it was the message by which each one of them would be saved at the end, on the last day, provided that they had sincerely embraced it. So in sum, the gospel was everything to the church at Corinth. It was their charter, it was their course, it was their crown. And yet, As important as it was, the gospel was something about which the Corinthians needed to be reminded. Because if there's one thing for which God's people are known, it is forgetfulness. And that's why in Old Testament days, God warned his people. He especially warned them in the books of Deuteronomy and the books of Psalms not to forget him. Not not, not the positive to remember, but the negative. Don't forget. Don't forget me. Don't forget my promises. Don't forget my kindness and my benefits to you. But they did. And why in New Testament days, God continues to remind his people, you and me, of the very same thing. He does it here in 1 Corinthians. First in chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul wrote, I sent you Timothy to remind you of what I teach. And now here in 15.1, where he states, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. God does this time and again, even throughout the New Testament. Romans 15, 2 Timothy 1, Titus 3, 2 Peter in multiple places, Jude 1.15. And with all those reminders, you would think that we would remember god we would remember his promises we we would remember his kindnesses in some the gospel but we don't we don't if we're given to forget the comprehensive goodness of a parent or a spouse or or our employer then it's certainly within us for to forget the goodness of god the gospel of god this is a sign of just how strong our me-centeredness tendencies are. They're powerful. They eclipse our better judgments. And that's why it's important to regularly gather, even in this way to be reminded of the gospel, as well as to encourage one another in it, and all the more as we see the last day drawing near, Hebrews 10.25. 10, So what are the contents of this good news which the Corinthians had received, in which they stood, and by which they were being saved? Well, the contents are summed up there in verses 3 and 4, and you can see they are uh, clipped and simple. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. Christ appeared. That's the gospel. Notice with me, though, three things about the gospel is articulated here by Paul. First, Christ really died. We, we know this not just because it says so in verse 3, but uh, because in verse 4 it says he was buried. Buried, uh, uh, living people are not buried. Uh, over the 12 years that I worked for a local mortuary, I never buried a living person. I'm certain of that. Uh, Living people stand on the ground. Dead people go, go into or under the ground. Christ really died. And for security reasons, the Romans were so concerned that it remained clear that Jesus had died, that that they closed the tomb in which Jesus was buried with a stone that if it was like uh, stones that were used in that day for that purpose was multiple tons in weight. And and then authenticated the closure of that stone by, by placing a Roman seal on it. And then secured the premises with a guard that was probably comprised of 16 men, each responsible for an area six by six feet, allowed to neither sit nor lean while on duty, and doomed to discipline and even death if they were found asleep. So Paul is clear that Christ died, and there's to be no mistake about it. But the second thing I want us to notice here is that Christ was really raised from the dead. Uh, we know that not just because it says so in verse 4, but as we continue down on into that verse, we know it because it goes on to say that once he was raised, he appeared to others. Now, at that time, if the death of Jesus had not been seen, it, it had It had at least been heard, you you knew about it by way of the news that was traveling around. Consider the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus and the two on the road to Emmaus. So uh, they're coming from Jerusalem, they're traveling west down from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus comes on to this pair and he says to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? This is in Luke 24. It was such a stunning question that it stopped the two right in their tracks. They may have become slack-jawed at the audacity of the question. The passage goes on to say they they stood still. They they stood there looking sad. And then one of them, by the name of Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus said, Masterfully, replies, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then later in the passage we read that their eyes were opened and and they recognized this one with whom they were speaking. They they, they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem. In other words, they went back up the hill and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered saying together, the Lord has, has risen indeed. So, Paul is clear that Christ really died and that Christ was really raised from the dead, proving that his death was to pay for and conquer our rebellion. Third, notice that Christ's death and resurrection occurred in accordance with the Scriptures. That is to say, the gospel was not an invention of the first century found only in the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, The the, the Bible is not an imagining of some author who could have just as easily set the whole thing in Narnia or Middle Earth. No, the, the gospel came to us by way of recorded human history that includes real people living in real places, engaging in real events. So so the gospel isn't just something found at a point in scripture, but rather throughout the scripture. Consider the beginning of the New Testament book of Mark, where we read these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So the gospel is seen even in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Consider the beginning of the New Testament book of Romans. Paul set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures. So the gospel is seen throughout all the Old Testament prophets, even his death, for example, Isaiah 53, even his resurrection, for example, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, even his resurrection on the third day, the book of Jonah, uh, uh, according to Jesus, Matthew 12, 40, Hosea 6, 1 and 2. So Paul is clear that Christ really died and he was really raised from the dead. All for our sins, all according to a predetermined plan going as far back as the first book of the Bible. But the contents of the gospel rise and fall on that last bit there in verse 5. Take a look at it. This concerns the authenticity or the truth of the gospel. In verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he then appeared. He appeared. Why did he appear? To prove that he was alive. So in verses 5 through 7, Paul gives a representative list of those to whom Jesus appeared alive. So so in verse five, Peter, who had profanely denied Christ at his greatest point uh, of need, saw Jesus alive. Uh, The 12, many of whom had deserted Jesus, saw Jesus alive. There in verse number six, over 500 at one time, most of whom were, were still alive and could attest to the veracity of Paul's writing saw Jesus raised from the dead. James, uh, Jesus' own brother, who at one point thought he was nuts. Uh, We we, we know that because at a point in Jesus' ministry, we're told that that, that Jesus' family went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Mark 3.21. James saw him raised from the dead not so crazy anymore. The apostles who witnessed Jesus' ministry from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension and had been commissioned by Christ himself to go and bear witness to it, which they boldly did throughout the book of Acts, they saw him raised from the dead and appealed to others who had witnessed the same. So the truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins rose from the dead to prove that he had really died for our sins is confirmed by multiple eyewitness accounts which means that the gospel is worthy of your consideration not because you need it though we all need it but because it's true it, it it's authentic It's real. It really happened. Now, having said that, not all who consider the gospel, not all who listen to its claims, um, uh, believe it. Uh, The closing scene in the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, uh, has the, the risen Christ, standing on a hilltop surrounded by onlookers. And Matthew in chapter 28 verse 17 writes these words, and when they saw him, that is the resurrected Christ, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So the evidence for the gospel is on review. It it was there for them in the flesh And it's here for us, in fact, to be accepted or to be rejected. Finally, Paul refers to himself also as one who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And according to his own experience, Paul's own experience represents the breath of those for whom the gospel is intended. It's its entire audience. Uh, notice to begin here that Paul was a victimizer. He, he was a victimizer. By his own admission, we see there in verse number nine, he persecuted the church of God. Now, at first, Paul. But was a passive victimizer. He held the coats for those who were actively victimizing believers. We see that in chapter 7, verse 58. But in time, we read that he went from being a passive to an active victimizer, ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women to be committed to prison. That's Acts chapter 8. But it continues on in Acts chapter 9, where we're told that Paul. Breed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, going to the high priest, asking him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, uh, so that if he found any there belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, Friends, Paul was not a nice man, he was a victimizer. He was a perpetrator of systemic injustice. So, how did he go from being a victimizer and a perpetrator of systemic injustice to the man whom we've come to know throughout the New Testament and in the book of 1 Corinthians in particular? Well, it wasn't due to anything within himself. It wasn't due to his better senses or some idealized perspective of how the world might be. No, rather, it came from something entirely without. And three times over, we see there in verse number 10 that it came by way of the grace of God, in short, the gospel. That's how Paul was transformed, by way of the gospel, Uh, uh, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. The grace of God is with me. So, one audience for which the gospel is intended is victimizers. Even those as notorious and murderous as Paul. I want you to take a moment... I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think of a victimizer. Maybe even yourself, and realize that God's grace is sufficient for him, or for her, or even for you. Notice also that when Paul was transformed by the grace of God, he went from being a victimizer to being a victim. Uh, he, He became the very kind of person whom he had formerly hated and tortured and killed. So interestingly, the gospel is intended not just for victimizers, but for victims as well. Uh, Consider the ways that Paul was victimized for embracing the gospel, even, even in all of its transformative hope and beauty as seen in this letter and throughout the Scripture. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he describes his, this is all for the gospel, his many imprisonments, uh, near-death beatings, lashes with whips, poundings with rods and stones, dangers from all peoples wherever he went, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, exposure, anxiety, all for the sake of the gospel. Paul was even killed for the sake of the gospel. In Paul, the Corinthians saw how the gospel brought down the victimizer, but lifted up the victims with comfort and strength and hope, even in their extremity. Not until they were freed from it, but even in the midst of it. He brought down the victimizer. He lifted up the victim by one and the same way. Freedom from sin that comes by way of the cross. Power for living that comes by way of the empty tomb. And this is why throughout this letter, the gospel is the matter of first importance. The hope. For victims and victimizers, the, the love that is not generated from within but comes from without, that is pursued, as Jackson put it three weeks ago, once a person realizes that Jesus first pursued him or her. We love not because we love in our own strength, but we love because God first loved us, 1 John four nineteen and most clearly in Christ, who is the picture of other-centeredness. That is the still more excellent way. That is the kind of love that keeps one's actions from being a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. More than anything else, more than anything, hear me, not to the exclusion of other things, not to the exclusion of other things, but more than anything else, this is what God's people have to uniquely offer to our troubled world today. Only the church can offer it, and that by way of the scripture. This past week, I was an uptown Whittier for both of the demonstrations. At one, I talked to a pair of uh, uniformed uh, officers, and at the other, uh, I spoke to a a masked demonstrator. I spoke to others on both of those occasions, but I I spoke to those uh, in particular about the gospel because that's why I was there. You see, my presence was motivated by the example of Christian students at Whittier College, who back in the 60s when uh, demonstrations were an almost uh, weekly event, would work their way in and through the crowd and distribute little pamphlets expressing the hope of the gospel. And I remember those days. And I remember those students And I was moved and motivated over 50 years later by their example. And so I didn't pack my pockets with pamphlets, but I loaded my heart with the hope of the gospel and the word of God and a prayer that he would bless any encounters that I might happen to have. And so as it relates to the masked demonstrator, we... We talked at length. Rather, he, he talked at length. He, too, had been at both of the events. He had a, a high-end digital camera, and he was recording all that was, was going on. He told me why he was doing that. He told me where he was born and why he now lived in Whittier. But at the end of the day, he basically said to me, I see no solution for any of this which I replied, well, that's why I'm here. Because there is a solution. It's not within the heart of anyone in this crowd. It's not in your heart or my heart. Rather, the solution was realized when Jesus died for the sin that generated all the pain that we're seeing and hearing today. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again, he offers that solution even today to anyone who comes to him in faith. And that solution is not only something that can take a person or a society through this life, but on into the next one as well. So we continued to talk. And then finally he thanked me and he hopped on his bike and he pedaled on into and through the crowd. He may have arrived that afternoon without a solution, but he left at least having heard one, the gospel, the the good news, the matter of first importance, the foundation of love in that still more excellent way, the hope for healing of division inside the church and outside the church as well. Friends, for all the conversations that have been had, for all the conversations that you will yet have, even this week, may they be shaped, even contain the gospel. It is what we uniquely have to offer to this world, and especially at this time. It is the thing of first importance it is. God help us, and he has, by way of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, may we know, may we believe, may we live the gospel the strong foundation for true and lasting love, the great hope for healing the divisions within the church and throughout our world. Father, may we at Grace be all that Paul longed for the church at Corinth, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray all these things. Amen.